one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Good afternoon, Chris. Good to talk again number of things I think we should discuss today. One is we've had data out of Europe today on labour markets and on house prices. Some interesting stuff in there. Yesterday, we had a decision by OPEC to cut back um, daily oil production by 1.1 million barrels. So I think we need to talk about that and the implications and, and I guess why it happened. I want to talk about the Irish exchequer returns. We've got the first quarter data today. Um, some really interesting stuff in there. And I think it does tie into a broader discussion around what's happening on global stock markets at the moment, and more particularly what the outlook is like for stock markets in general, but I guess earnings in particular, which are obviously a significant driver. But I'd like to start off by um, discussing, to me, somebody who was an iconic UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nigel Lawson, um, whose death has just occurred. I, I guess when I was growing up during my formative years, learning economics and so on in secondary school and in college, um, we were going through the Thatcher period. Um, people like Michael Heseltine and Nigel Lawson were, you know, very high profile, influential figures at the time. So at 91 years of age, Nigel Lawson has just bowed out. And I know you have a particular interest in Lawson because um, you sort of worked for him at one stage. Yeah, emphasis on sort of. I was a very junior Treasury official for a short time in the 1980s when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. And I did work 
related to his big tax cutting budgets, actually. I think I'd be violating the Official Secrets Act if I started going on about the detail of my work. But I, the one thing, one of the few things I'm proud of as, as a professional economist, actually, is the work I did there where I, I think, he says modestly, conclusively showed that the supply side case for tax cuts, the famous Laffer curve, was a load of bollocks. And I wrote lots of papers with lots of algebra that I don't understand anymore. They went ahead with the tax cuts anyway, so I had absolutely zero influence on policy. But the aims of the justification for the tax cuts had to be found elsewhere. They were not deemed to be self-financing. They hoped that they could say that, they could claim that, but but they didn't. It was in, in his memoirs, actually, he doesn't reference me, of course he doesn't, but he does talk about the fact that the the Laffer curve, the supply side case for tax cuts, the idea that tax cuts pay for themselves, he actually references it as, in my language, not his, a load of bollocks. So that, that was an interesting time for me. He was the most consequential chancellor in modern history in the UK. His, his work with, with Margaret Thatcher, his rows with Margaret Thatcher about economics and his eventual resignation as Chancellor of the Exchequer were all massively consequential and carry great resonance for the present day in terms of the things that they were arguing about. Uh, But it was a different time, Jim. And one of the things to remember is that interest rates, when they were controlled by Nigel Lawson, this was prior to the days when the Bank of England had independence and control of interest rates, interest rates in the UK were in the mid-teens. So if you're worried about interest rates and your mortgages today, just look back not too far into history when the UK and Ireland had interest rates of 15%, sometimes a wee bit higher. So, uh, yeah, it's it's always a sad day when, when these, these massive figures from history, love them or loathe them, uh, pass on. But Lord Lawson of Blaby has, has died at the age of 81. 91, sorry, 91. And Chris, did he live in France in recent years? Yeah, he became a, another very consequential figure because he became a leading Brexiteer. So that's one reason why I didn't like him in his later years, or at least his views. I wouldn't make it personal. But he he had that contradiction in terms of somebody that lived in France, but was an arch Brexiteer. So go figure, how did he peacefully coexist with those two contradictory views in his head? But maybe that's the sign of a successful politician that you can believe all sorts of nonsense and and be quite happy. But yes, he was a, he was a French dwelling old age pensioner. You mentioned there about the notion of supply-side economics and tax cuts being bollocks. When Charlie McCreevy, as Minister for Finance here, slashed the capital gains tax rate over the next couple of years, the take under that particular category increased dramatically because there was a lot more activity. So that tax cut certainly more than paid for itself over the next few years. And indeed, the left in this country um, has never forgiven McCreevy for doing that and continue to rail back to it but actually it was an unmitigated success Uh, and that was at a time when you know we were I guess struggling to try and generate tax revenues um, to try and put a positive spin on the public finances. Yeah sorry my remarks about about uh, the supply side case of tax cuts need to be qualified then given it. Um, What were the impacts of those tax cuts that Lawson introduced? Well they didn't pay for themselves uh, and in the end they were inflationary because they, they stoked an inflationary boom when he, he cut the top rate of tax from, uh, it was, you know, 60, 70, 80%, depending on how you measured these things, when you combined income and capital gains taxes, all the way to 40%. And I was working in the City of London at the time, uh, in 1988, when the really big cut in income tax, and the people that it helped, 
their post-tax incomes were people working in the city. And I saw fellas, and they were men, dancing on their desks as a result of that tax cut. They they had been enriched so much. Uh, It was an extraordinary sight, uh, very 1980s, I would say. I was not one of them, I stress. I, I, I was not earning that much that it made such a huge difference to me. But yeah, I think the main consequences of his tax cuts were inflation. You can argue till the cows come home about whether they uh, helped the British economy in the way that they were designed to do. I think they did have some positive effects. They did have some some positive supply side effects. But the Laffer curve is all about whether or not it's it's just simply an N-shaped curve. It's a, it's a bell-shaped curve and uh, whether or not you're to the right or the left of the peak of that curve. And there are conditions when you, if you are to the right of the peak of the curve, cutting taxes will increase revenues. And that's, uh, and what I showed in my work for the Treasury is that those conditions can exist, but they're going to be rare. They're not, it's not impossible, but most of the time, in particular the British economy, and with respect to income tax cuts, uh, was definitely not to the right of the peak of the Laffer curve to be uh, spuriously technical about it. So yeah, my qualification is, Jim, yes, I'm quite sure that you, any of us could come up with examples, you just quite rightly did there, where tax cuts led to increases, but they are the exception, in my opinion, that proves the rule. Yeah, but Chris, I just look at my own personal behaviour, um, the amount of income tax I pay, and I have now reached a stage, perhaps it's an age thing with me, where there's a prospect of some work, and I asked myself the question, what am I going to end up with after tax? How much effort am I going to have to put in to deliver this job? And I may or may not make a decision to proceed with it. So I, I just find the disincentive effect of taxes incredibly compelling and strong. If, if I believed, though, that the government that was collecting my taxes was actually using the money in a sensible way that was improving life, etc etc well then perhaps i would be prepared to pay higher taxes but i I really resent actually having to pay any more taxes you know given the amount of effort involved to earn money in the first place so i i see taxes as having an incredibly strong either incentive or disincentive effect depending on what we're talking about i think you're absolutely right jim they do taxes have huge effects on the economy no no argument there at all and they have huge incentive effects and disincentive effects, depending on which way they're going. It's, it's what happens in the aggregate. And you're describing yourself there, your, your very honest, open reaction to uh, the taxes that you pay. And, and I know what your, you know, higher earners, and you don't have to be earning very much to be a higher earner in Ireland, pay taxes and USC and PRSI all adding up to 52% at your marginal rate. And the more you earn, the more your average rate approaches that, that marginal rate. And I can understand how for many individuals that does, A, act as a disincentive and B, uh, piss them off. Uh, because particularly if, you, as you introduced into the conversation there, what you think government is actually doing with your taxes. Here in the UK, I pay £300 a month property taxes. It's called council tax here. It's a lot more than the property taxes I think you pay for a similar house in, in Ireland. As far as I can see, my £300 a month uh, property tax, simply all I get out of it, and all anybody that I know gets out of it, is uh, our bins are collected. We cannot discern any other local services that that are worth paying for, or indeed exist. So yes, these these things are real, they're important, 
and value for money for taxpayers is incredibly important. But it's what happens in the aggregate. If you if you cut the top rate of tax in Ireland from 52 to 40%, it would be a, an interesting experiment. And I would suggest that it wouldn't lead to a large increase in tax revenues on the basis of what I know about where you, you in Ireland, not you, Jim Power, but you in Ireland are on the Laffer curve. But I'd be delighted if I was proved wrong, because it would be great, wouldn't it, that if... if you got even more tax revenues as a result of a tax cut. I wouldn't be urging that kind of experiment on the finance minister right now, to be honest. May Nigel Lawson rest in peace. Indeed. Uh, we had, as I said in my introduction, data from Europe today, from Eurostat. Uh, the EU unemployment rate has fallen to 6% of the labour force, 6.6% in the euro area. So uh, an incredibly strong labour market still despite the economic headwinds. And indeed, this is a feature of most economies around the world at the moment. Uh, Despite the elevated levels of inflation over the last 12 months, despite the pretty dramatic increase we've seen in interest rates, labour markets remain very strong and very tight. And there's still no evidence that employers who fought very hard to hire workers in the first place in a very tight labour market where recruitment and retention is a big issue. Very few signs that employers are yet prepared to start shedding that labour in any significant way, Uh, notwithstanding, of course, what's happening in the technology sector at the moment, where uh, obviously there was a totally unrealistic hiring spree over the last two or three years. Uh, But generally, you know, it's it's, it's a tight labour market story. Um, The other piece of data on the house price front was also interesting. Um, In the final quarter of 2022, we saw a decline in EU house prices of 1.5%. This was the first decline since 2015. So the the, the, the rising interest rates are starting to have a significant impact on house prices, as we've always spoken about, of course. And um, here in Ireland, we saw data... Um, in the last couple of weeks that we spoke about from DAF.ie showing that house prices um, have declined in the first quarter, particularly in Dublin. Um, but so interest rates are working, uh, yep. a very um, desirable outcome. I think they're going to work on the labour market as well, just with the lag. I don't think we're too far off uh, weakness in labour markets, finally. I mean, we've been waiting for, a long, for a long time. And it's quite clear that employers are hanging on to workers uh, in ways perhaps that they haven't done in previous business cycles. Uh, the the house price data, as you say, is absolutely fascinating because I think house prices are cracking everywhere. Uh, in Europe, the worst numbers are actually out of Sweden, where year over year house prices are 15% lower than they were 12 months ago. Uh, the most recent numbers for Denmark and Germany, where they were the worst, 15 out of 27 Eurozone countries are showing price falls now. The UK has had the biggest year-over-year drop on one of its house price measures since 2009. These are not cataclysmic falls. Arguably, the 15% fall in Sweden is approaching something quite serious. Uh, But nothing else is like Sweden just yet. I do think that it started. I do think that the house price thing is going to continue and is going to get worse. I acknowledge the consensus out there, the consensus view of all the property analysts that I follow are that this is about as bad as it's going to get, uh, these sorts of falls. They're likely to continue in these sorts of numbers, but it's not going to get much worse. 
I happen to think they're wrong. I think the property markets everywhere are so stretched, not least in Ireland, but also in plenty of other places as well. The bigger deal for me in property is that are all of the stories we're hearing about commercial property. And there, there seems to me on both sides of the Atlantic, real trouble brewing, that there's too much leverage in the system, that property funds are closing to exits. There are all sorts of things like that happening. Uh, Central bankers are warning about the vulnerabilities of the links between commercial property prices, lending to firms that have bought commercial property and the banking system. If there is a vulnerability out there, it's quite clear that central banks are worried about commercial property, retail and offices and the like. And obviously that the property market has many different segments and residential is nothing like uh, commercial property, except for one thing. They're both very sensitive to interest rate rises and we've had loads of those. So I do think that with a lag, we are finally starting to see things crack. You mentioned Eurozone labour markets being very tight. Absolutely, you're 100% right to describe them in that way. But we've had the first, and I I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, I think it is the first sign, and it is only a very tentative sign, of a small crack in the US labour market over the last 24 hours with something called the JOLT survey, which is about job openings. And job openings, vacancies, are falling to levels we haven't seen for a little while. It's not major, it's not, it's not a huge deal, but it's the first time these numbers have surprised on the downside. And these vacancy numbers, which are coming in weaker than expected, are also coming in alongside other data for the US, which suggests that aspects of the economy, if not the whole economy, are weaker than expected. I'm of course referring to the manufacturing data we've had in the States over the last day or so, and that has been weak. So I think a combination of things, the things that you would have expected to happen after all of these interest rate rises are starting finally to happen, which is that the most interest rate sensitive sectors are starting to crack, which is the property market, both resi and in particular commercial. And the economy itself is showing signs of weakness, particularly in the States, particularly in manufacturing. It's not the whole economy. It's by far the smallest part of the economy. But to me, this is the start of something quite interesting. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, I saw Jamie Dimon, the head of JP Morgan, come out in the last 24 hours warning about further banking problems ahead. And, um, I, you know, you make the linkage there between what's happening on the commercial property side and banking. Um, I think that features in his analysis. And I've seen a number of others write about the vulnerability of the global banking system to commercial property markets at the moment. And uh, we've said for quite some time that when you get the sort of interest rate increase, uh, the magnitude of increase over such a short period of time that we've seen 
over the last 12 months, you know, there are bound to be negative consequences. And uh, we'll need to watch commercial property very closely over the coming months to make sure, well, not to make sure there's nothing we can do about it, but just to <laughs> ass- ass- assess how, how it's doing. So definitely a vulnerability. And yesterday, the last couple of days, we've seen OPEC come out, announce a cutback of 1.1 million barrels per day in oil production. Um, they didn't, well, I haven't seen their clear rationale for it, but um, I remember back in 2020, the Saudi energy minister at the time, not sure if he still is or not, but Prince Abdulaziz Salomon, who basically said he wants the guys on the trading floors as jumpy as possible, um, had a huge problem with um, speculators speculating um, for lower oil prices, which is something that's been going on in recent times. Uh, but the impact has been quite significant. I mean, we've, we've seen oil prices jump four or $5 barrel in the last couple of days. But since mid-March, the Brent crude has gone from 72 to $85 a barrel. So OPEC intent on trying to keep prices up. Um, I doubt if it'll succeed, to be honest, uh, because I, I think the, the, the global economic backdrop that you speak about um, the weakening in global demand that we're likely to see increasingly over the coming months, um, I think will keep downward pressure on oil prices. Of course, the big imponderable there is the impact that the um, reopened Chinese economy has on the global demand supply imbalance. Uh, but uh, what do you think OPEC is at? Well, I think that's an absolutely fantastic question, as as all politicians say when they're asked a really tricky question that they don't want to answer. <laughs> uh, but I think, first of all, you've got to remember OPEC is a, is a cartel. And what do cartels do? They try to keep prices up. So I don't think anybody be, should be that surprised when a cartel of any kind, least of all OPEC, which has got a lot of history, as you rightly described there, of wanting prices higher rather than lower context is that the Brent oil price, the one that you mentioned there, it's up five or six dollars since the announcement. But it's basically, I'm looking at a chart as we speak, exactly where it was this time last year. It had been quite weak during the banking crisis. It had fallen quite a lot. So all they've managed to do is get it back up to really where it's been trading over the course of the last 12 months. So it's not on the face of it in terms of its own history, a big deal. Traders, the ones that you mentioned there that the Saudi oil minister was having a go at, have been betting that the second half of this year, for one of the reasons that you mentioned actually, uh, is going to be very tight and that a lot of people were betting on higher prices towards the second half of this year going into 2024, partly because of that reason that you said, which is that China is coming back as an economy. And there's some indication that China is coming back big time, actually. We can talk about that again. So I think that they just want, remember, the OPEC have set a target of $100 a barrel for, for these benchmarks, give or take. And we're still well below where OPEC wants them to be. So no surprise there again. So do they think that they are going to get $100 a barrel by restricting supply? Uh, do they care if this complicates the task of central bankers with the fight against inflation? No, they don't. Uh, but the for me, I think reading between all the lines of everything that everybody has said about this, that firstly, the reaction to this $1.1 million a barrel cut was much less than people said it was going to be 24 hours ago. People immediately started talking about, oh, we're going in a straight line to $100. Oil prices, as we speak today, have actually fallen slightly. 
which which I think is interesting. I think that what they're up to is that they are in this world where everything is connected to everything else. They are listening to the Other Hand podcast and indeed to a lot of other people talking about this economic slowdown that's starting in the States that will spread globally because of these higher interest rates. And they think that will impact oil demand. And that very tight oil market that traders were thinking might happen in the second half of this year is actually wrong. That's not going to happen. That they have been seeing weakness in oil demand. And so they uh, are trying to do something about that from the supply side to try and keep their revenues up by keeping prices up at a time when they think oil demand could be quite weak. One of the things that's quite telling about this is that if you thought the higher prices were coming from the demand side, that China coming back and all the rest of it, post-COVID economies generally, that OPEC, Saudi Arabia in particular, would be doing what it's always done in these circumstances, is invest in new oil production capacity. Now, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf oil producers in general have money coming out their ears, as you might expect, they always do, petrodollars and all that, and they're not investing a penny in new capacity. They don't think the demand is going to be there. They are diversifying their economies as fast as they possibly can away from oil. That's really, really interesting. And I think that's a call on the demand side. So I don't think it's been a big deal. Uh, It's a deal. And initially, people say, oh, my God, it's a rerun of the 1970s when OPEC crashed the world economy, contributed to stagflation. It's going to make the job of central bankers really, really hard. Uh, All of that's still possible. I do not rule it out. But it seems to me at the moment that OPEC are worried, just as we are, about the future of of the world economy, and in particular for them, oil demand. The diversification in countries like Saudi, away from oil investment, uh, renewable energy, they're of it happening building there. a lot of solar farms. They're, yeah. they're trying to build tourist facilities. You, you know that they're trying to create a, a new golf tournament. Yeah. Uh, they're trying to make Saudi Arabia a hub for gaming, for video gaming. Uh, they're trying all sorts of different things. They're building a new city. Uh, so yeah, they they are thinking about, and uh, their behaviour is consistent with uh, a post-oil Saudi Arabia. And it strikes me that from a whole host of perspectives, not least that one day the oil will run out, not least that we, as we move to net zero, our own oil demand will continue to fall. I could show you all sorts of interesting charts, Jim, and I know you're familiar with them. I could show our audience if we had a, a video accompaniment to this pod about how the carbon intensity of our economies is so much less than it was in the 1970s. Uh, we, we, all the modern economies, peaked their carbon usage years ago. Uh, and so it's, 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 I think Saudi Arabia and others are behaving quite sensibly, quite rationally in thinking about what the future holds for them in, from the various forces that they are gripped by. Interesting. Uh, Chris, I'd now like to give our listeners a little bit of a data load. Um, we had the first quarter exchequer returns in Ireland uh, just released. In the first three months of the year, the exchequer ran a deficit of 2.1 billion. Uh, that compares to a surplus of 200 million in the same period last year. But the main reason for the turnaround is that in February, we put 4 billion into the National Reserve Fund. So this is the rainy day fund. So hence, that's where the deficit comes from. But looking at the tax situation, um, it is very much a story of Ireland continuing to generate massive amounts of tax revenues. In the first three months, as I say, 19.7 billion collected. 
that's 2.5 billion or 14.6% higher than the same period last year. That's overall tax revenues. And the three biggies there, income tax in at 7.4 billion, that's 555 million higher than last year or 8.1% growth. VAT came in at 6.8 billion, that's 930 million or 15.9% ahead of last year. And wait for it, corporation tax came in at 3.2 billion. That's 1.3 billion up on the first quarter of last year. An annual growth rate of 71.4%. And in the month of March alone, we took in 2.6 billion in corporation tax, 1 billion higher than March of last year, an increase of 63.2%. So I could go on, but you know, in a nutshell, um, Ireland continues to deliver absolutely buoyant tax revenues. And despite all of the fears about economic slowdown, um, you know, we're still not seeing it coming through in any of the tax categories. The Department of Finance, as usual, was quick out of the traps after the publication of these exchequer returns saying that uh, there's probably a timing factor at play here on the corporation tax side that some corporations, for whatever reason, uh, brought forward the payment of corporation tax. I, I'm not sure what the possible logic of that could be, but I think this is a story, as is always the case of the Department of Finance, trying to uh, preach caution, trying to keep our expectations in turn, and particularly trying to keep the government in place um, or under the thumb, whatever word you want to use, uh, because the obvious temptation when you see this sort of tax revenue growth is just to continue to throw money at everything. But um, I know we're three months into the year, um, and I know that, as we've discussed, the impact of higher interest rates takes some time to feed through the system. Uh, but you'd have to say it is still a bloody impressive um, tax revenue performance here. And it just proves, Chris, um, and this, I think, ties back to the discussion we had about the impact of taxation and Nigel Lawson, but it just proves how a functioning economy generates the resources that are then essential for funding public services. And um, I think, you know, woe betide any political party that comes in and starts to implement tax policies or uh, spending policies that actually undermine the basic economic model. Because if economic growth goes into decline or reverse, as has happened in the United Kingdom, immediately you see that starting to impact on the revenues generated and that in turn immediately puts pressure on the investment in public services and so on so i say and i would be accused of being a typical economist being obsessed with economic growth but i say bring it on keep it going because these this sort of growth is essential to deliver the sort of tax revenues that this country will require to try and fund public services properly um, over the coming years. You're absolutely right, Jim. We talked about Nigel Lawson being extremely consequential. That's because economic policy is always extremely consequential. So Nigel Lawson showed us, as so many different chances of the Exchequer Finance Ministers, policymakers generally, economic policy is very consequential for good or for ill. You've had a combination of many things in Ireland that have led to this tax machine that is Ireland. You can and I think there are two aspects that both you and I would emphasise at the moment is that 
it really is working like a purring tax machine and there are the resources available for the government to do good things and resources available for the government to waste it's entirely up to them and so i think we can expect a lot of money being thrown at the housing issue going forward but the economic policy being consequential thing reminds us of the many things that we've said about opposition governments in ireland opposition parties in ireland and the policies that they are proposing and they will be consequential jim uh, for good or ill we suspect we know which uh, side of the debate we're on with that and i think that in a future pod a near-term pod we should return to that and ask whether this tax machine is threatened materially by the various drivers that we see out there. First, the slowdown in the world economy. Second, the very specific tech uh, job layoffs that we're seeing at the moment and the way in which the tech universe is being transformed by artificial intelligence, which is going to create huge winners and losers within tech, within the economy as a whole. And when economic policy changes in Ireland, when you get your Sinn Féin government, how consequential will that be? But shall we leave that for next time? Yeah, absolutely. Lots of food for thought there. Chris, great talking as usual. Uh, Talk again. Cheers, Jim. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.